this week on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. But did he blunt her momentum here, and can he stay in second place in Iowa? That's the key for him. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Scott Jennings in Iowa. The Iowa caucus is coming up. Jared Crawford is behind the controls. And I am Joe Arnold here on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Scott, what a performance by Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in Iowa on Wednesday night. And you are in Des Moines. You were there at the debate. And this is our special Flyover Country edition of the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, a couple things. Number one, I have already registered the domain SeanSouthernLies.com. <laughs> oh, Sean is not here. I don't know that I need it now. But you know what? I do need it now, but I haven't had a chance to put it up. But I will use it, and I'll have it forever and ever. So to all of our listeners, my recommendation is go on the Internet, get your name, lies.com, register that. Because if you ever find yourself debating Nikki Haley, you're going to need it. It was a, <laughs> It was a... It was really kind of a fascinating night, I thought. This is the first head-to-head debate of this uh, election. Other than DeSantis taking on Gavin Newsom on Fox News earlier this year. And honestly, I I think it showed. I think that training for DeSantis actually helped him. I didn't think Haley had her best night. I thought the Ron DeSantis or DeSantisLies.com felt like a very, very strange rhetorical crutch to me. And as and, and as the night went on, by the way, the crowd was just groaning in the hall. They didn't like it as it as it went on. Uh, but I thought uh, and I thought she seemed rattled, truthfully. I think I think she she got rattled early on. And it I don't know that she ever really uh, settled down. DeSantis seemed nervous to me at the start. A little bit of quiver in his voice. But then he finally settled down and I think delivered uh, a better performance. And we can talk about some of the issues they debated. But overall, you know, what's the situation in Iowa here? Haley's got some momentum, generally. Trump is dominant. DeSantis has been stuck in the mud in the polling. He needed something to, you know, give him give him a little bit of a springboard heading into Monday. And I think he got it. Now, is it enough? I don't know. But, uh, but, but I think he had the better night. Of course, the... Uh... The, the the front runner in the race, just for the matter of historical record here, was not uh, was not there. Uh, I, it, it seems to me a missed opportunity. Both Haley and DeSantis were critical of Trump for not being there, but it seemed to be they had to be kind of coaxed into saying anything about him by the moderators. Yeah, in their town hall meetings last week on CNN, so they did individual town halls. They went after Trump a lot more tonight. The vitriol and the attacks were saved for each other. You know, that that DeSantis lies bit, you know, it it struck me as odd that she walked up on that stage having had made a website about DeSantis. But to your point, Joe, where's TrumpLies.com? You know, where mm-hmm. where is the comparable website to say, I've got two opponents. They both lie. You can go to check it out. She She had none of that for Donald Trump. And I do think it lends some credence to the attack that DeSantis is leveling against her, which is she's auditioning to be Trump's vice president. And that speaks to why Chris Christie did not endorse her 
uh, when he dropped out of the race uh, yesterday, which, by the way, was the big kind of pre-debate news that everyone was chattering about at the debate hall. Let's talk about that. This for, let's, let's go ahead and get Chris Christie out of the way, if you will, um, and, and, and talk about that as far as how consequential of a, uh, of a, of a moment that is for the, for the campaign. Uh, first of all, Scott, just remind us about where he is in the polls in Iowa, I guess, and, and in New Hampshire. And does his departure even make a difference at this point? Because doesn't he still appear on the ballot, at least in, in New Hampshire? He's nowhere in Iowa, so we can forget that. Um, and you can't uh, or wouldn't caucus for someone, I don't think, in Iowa. I'm not sure exactly what the rules are, but but the way it works in the hall, you wouldn't do that in Iowa. Now, in New Hampshire, there are ballots, and he will appear on the ballot. So you could still vote for someone, even though he's out of the race. In the polling, you know, he's somewhere between 6 and 12%. I just saw an Emerson poll this morning um, uh, that had him uh, still pulling in some votes in New Hampshire. So the theory is that, and, and this is what all of Nikki Haley's donors and supporters have wanted, is that Chris Christie gets out of the race and that all of his supporters go over to Nikki Haley. It never works that way. Maybe some of them will. Maybe most of them will. But you will not get a direct one-for-one conversion of, well, I was for Christie, now I'm automatically for Haley. In fact, I think uh, what you heard Chris Christie say in his town hall meeting in New Hampshire when he announced he was dropping out is why some of them won't go over to her because she's not running a pure anti-Trump campaign. She's not running the never Trump campaign. And honestly, Joe, in the hall last night, what everyone was talking about, and Jared, maybe we can cue it up, is not what he said publicly on the stage, but what he said backstage, which got picked up on a hot mic. Jared, let's play that. You know, yeah. Oh, well, when you give land to China and places like that. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, she spent $68 million so far, just on TV. Spent $68 million so far, $59 million by DeSantis, and we spent twelve. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked, and you and I both know it. She's not up to this. She's still 20 points behind Trump in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And he's, gonna, he's still going to carry Iowa, right? Yes. Always. I, t- you know, I talked to De- DeSantis called me, petrified but that I would. He's probably getting out of it after Iowa. Well, he's pe- so I'm not quite clear there, Scott. What I just heard there from Chris Christie is that Nikki is going to get smoked and then that somehow Ron DeSantis is petrified or whatever. But, okay, this, first of all, I don't believe necessarily in accidents. I think I think Chris Christie's planting this. I think this is a complete his way of being able to 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 achieve his ends about his own political calculations here and blame it on some kind of a of a leak. I mean, who, where does this come from? What, what is the source of this audio that everyone has? My understanding is, is that his campaign had started the live stream of his town hall, which would be a standard thing to do live stream an event. But basically, they had already started the live feed and I, he had already been mic'd up. And so he's backstage talking to somebody and he says, well, you heard him, you know, he says uh, uh, they don't want to hear it, which I assume is a reference to Republican voters don't want to hear his message. And then he talks about Haley, <laughs> you know, right after this broke, I was on CNN with David Axelrod and, and Anderson Cooper. And, and I brought it up and Anderson said, well, you don't, we don't exactly know if he was talking about Nikki Haley or not. <laughs> And I was thinking, well, 
you know, if you're talking about somebody getting smoked, I'm pretty sure he's not laying out his recipe for the next family barbecue. You know, I think, <laughs> I, think he's, I think we know what he's talking about. But that's where it came from is that so I guess somebody was recording off off of YouTube, the live stream. And so, bang, now you have now yeah. you have the audio. And, and what's so problematic about it for Haley is for all the wishing for this endorsement. Now, you know, you have Chris Christie out there saying, uh, uh, don't throw your vote. I mean, effectively, don't throw your vote away, Jared, on on Nikki Haley. I mean, that that that's what he was saying. She's going to get smoked. We all know it. Well, if you're one of his people and you're looking for the next uh, off ramp here, he told you a good reason why you should sit it out effectively. Yeah, he's almost like weirdly become a pro Biden surrogate in all of this. Right. Like he's almost hurting Republicans now more than anybody, because Christie's whole thing is like, just don't vote for any of them. They're like none of them are actually worth it. It's this. It's really bizarre dynamics that are that are kind of happening now. I, I will second Joe's I, not to make this the tinfoil hat podcast, but I'm a little what little woke on this hot mic thing too. It almost cuts off a little perfectly where we get to uh, speculate about what he's he's petrified about. Um, yeah, I don't know how much like this still matters. Like, I think for us and people who are like super tuned in, there's the like, how many will go to Nikki Haley? How many will fall off? How many? I I still don't know that I see a world in in which any of it matters except on the margins. I just think I I, I still think Trump is so dominant, and the way that there's all this infighting now, and he's just kind of sitting hitting softballs on Fox news at the same time. I, I just don't know how I see any of this really matters at the end of the day. Uh, Cause it's just, it's such a small percentage of votes. They're all passing. So, so Joe, to answer your question. So the, and the Emerson poll that I referenced. So, so this was taken all before Christie left the race. So it came out this morning. We're, we're recording this on Thursday morning, January 11th. Trump was at 44 Haley was at 28, Christie was at 12, was at 12, and DeSantis was at 7, and Ramaswamy was at 4. So in this one, Christie was up 3 points from their last poll in mid-November. Haley was up 10 points from their last poll in mid-November, and Trump was down 5 points. So if you're a Haley supporter, and you're like, wow, Chris Christie's got 12 points, maybe we can get all 12 of those. My point is this. You never get a full one-for-one -one conversion. You never mm -hmm. get a full conversion. And so you might get some of it, but I'm just, I guess I'm just skeptical to, to, to Jared's point. Some of the way Christie has run this campaign is meant for very liberal or not conservative independents. And Nikki Haley has gone out and said she would pardon Donald Trump. I mean, she's running a, she's not running an anti-Trump campaign. She's not running a liberal campaign necessarily. And so if you were for Chris Christie because you want the Republican Party to be a never Trump party or a more of a liberal party, I don't I don't know that Chris Christie and certainly not Ron DeSantis or anyone else in, that's left in this race is going to be your thing. So why would you even vote? One other point, Joe, and then I'll, I'll come back to you. While Christie was sort of making this speech, by the way, his speech to that audience was scathing about Haley, about DeSantis and about Trump. It was scathing. And you can see he has no in, intention of supporting the Republican nominee if it's Donald Trump. He may not even support the Republican nominee if it's not Donald Trump, based on what I heard him say. But but a couple of hours after he did that last night, Chris Sununu, who is the governor of New Hampshire and who is supporting Nikki Haley, went on CNN. And for the first time, 
said, I will support the Republican nominee. So, Jared, I think what you're describing there, you know, is is Chris Christie a Biden surrogate? Well, you can kind of see everybody else aligning around the concept of supporting the Republican Party nominee, except for Chris Christie. And and as you pointed out, Jared, there, there's a world where I could see him endorsing Joe Biden. I could see Chris Christie saying, look, I'm putting my country over my party. I disagree with everything this man has done, but he's not Donald Trump and he's not going to do anything like what Donald Trump would do. Therefore, I'm so I could see him doing that. I could see him doing that. Absolutely. Couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is how much Trump has sort of like changed the party. And we even talk about Nikki Haley is kind of like still a pre-Trump Republican. But even she, like you mentioned, would say, look, she worked in his administration. So there's at least some alignment there on on policy goals. You know, you saw you've seen this over the last eight years. Republicans who have no problem endorsing Democrats or supporting Democrats because they think Trump is that much of a, uh, you know, a a danger or whatever threat to democracy. You know, add in your 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 favorite line there. But, yeah, I I mean, I think I could absolutely see this in that. I think Christie had this righteous path he was going on thought maybe he could pull some people along with him. Nobody did. Now he's kind of like sitting by himself at lunch and it's like, you know what? Screw these guys. I, I could absolutely see that. I am so caught, just tied up in knots over this very question because at this point, this is, this is a side here. My, as far as my own calculus on, on this contest between Trump and Biden is really, I have to, th- my, my big question is who's going to do more damage because they both are. And so, and so then I have to think about, okay, so who I do, I think is going to surround themselves with people who are going to try to mitigate the damage they can do. And oddly enough, despite the fact that I think that Donald Trump has already proven himself unworthy of the office, I actually think that he might have, the ability to surround himself with people who, I mean, I think the first time around, the first term of Donald Trump was frankly a success policy-wise, despite the fact that he is morally reprehensible and and someone unworthy of the office. But from a, from a pure standpoint of the administration and getting things done, I mean, Joe Biden has already wrecked this country and has done so much damage and the people he's surrounding himself with and the, the people who are protesting outside of the White House about his um, uh, you know not enough support for Palestine or whatever I'm as, my, I, I know this is a, is a tangent here just for a moment but my, my point being is I mean I don't know how much Scott you call me a squish in terms of my you know but I, but, but I am that pre-Trump Republican I am that Nikki Haley constituency who's longing for basically a normalness. And when she said, I mean, I don't know how she can be this VP, by the way, if she's saying Trump just brings chaos, what she said last night during the debate, you know, which yeah. is true. He is chaos. But Bi- Biden is taking the country down the very wrong path. And the people he surrounded himself with would do, would do, would do, do even more damage. And I think from a policy standpoint, I don't know. Do, do you think that there is... <laughs> Am I how unusual am I, Scott? And and, and or is this the dilemma that uh, the 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 GOP faithful find themselves in right now? You're you're not you're not 
Um, I mean, you are basically articulating what I've heard virtually every Nikki Haley supporter say during this campaign. They always say, I like most everything Donald Trump did as president. They always say they uh, either thought he uh, was morally problematic or that they they're tired of the chaos or you know something along those lines and 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 they say you know why can't we have all the policy we want without the baggage i mean i mean you're laying out essentially what every college educated middle-aged republican would say about the trump years it's what nikki haley says about the trump years and and I guess I'm guessing um, we're going to find out in this primary how many of you are left. I mean, that, and I've, I've talked about this on a couple of podcasts. I did one with uh, Josh Kroshauer this week from Jewish Insider. And then uh, uh, what was the name of that other one we did, Jared? The Vox uh, Today yeah, Explained. Today Explained, yep. And, and we talked about this. And, and, and Joe, I think you hit it on the head. Haley represents, and she's the only one in the race now, Haley represents the pre-Trump Republican Party nominee, someone who could have you could have easily seen being the nominee prior to 2016. That's who she represents. And of course, Trump is Trump. And DeSantis, even though he came along just before Trump, I think of him as a Trump era politician because he's been governor of Florida. He got Trump's endorsement to become governor. And his style and his attitude are squarely Trump era kind of attitude. And so we're going to find out, I think, in some of these in in these primaries, how many how many pre-Trump Republicans are left and how many people are just more comfortable now in the Trump era uh, and, and want that want that attitude. You're seeing it. I think you see it played out in terms of how they approach the the public presentation style, but you're also seeing it in terms of policy. We saw some of it last night. Jared, I think uh, I don't know how much audio we have on this, but the debate over foreign policy between DeSantis and Haley to me is the greatest example of of the policy differences between the two eras. Nikki Haley laid out a very forceful defense of Ukraine and excoriated Biden and said he's not telling you the truth. He's not explaining to you well enough why this is important, but I will. And talk. I mean, she really had a very Reagan-esque view of foreign policy. And then Ron DeSantis lays out uh, a more skeptical view of U.S. engagement in Ukraine and casts himself as more of a populist on it, casts himself as more of a, this really isn't that big of a deal and we have other priorities. That, to me, that exchange was one of the biggest uh, dividing lines of what you're describing, Joe. And uh, um uh, and and obviously, you know, we're going to see where the party is on it. I suspect, I suspect more people are where DeSantis is, even though I was proud of Haley for sticking to her guns. I mean, she's got the minority position in the party. Her position on foreign policy is not the majority opinion in the Republican Party. It would be easy for her to flip-flop on this because she knows where most voters are. She has not done it in a single debate or a single town hall, and I do think she deserves credit for that. Let's take a listen now to that exchange, DeSantis-Haley foreign policy. You have to be a friend to get a friend. And we needed a lot of friends September 12th. We've got to make sure that we're having the backs of the right friends. Because if Russia wins, China wins. There's a reason the Taiwanese want us to help the Ukrainians. And that's because they know if Ukraine wins, China won't invade Taiwan. This is about preventing war. 
she doesn't articulate how this comes to an end, except she was asked uh, after the last debate uh, by, I believe, Megyn Kelly, and she said, you bring it to an end by bringing Ukraine into NATO. But, of course, we're a NATO country, so if you bring Ukraine into NATO, that puts the United States at war. Megyn said that to her, and then she basically gave a word salad uh, as to how you go from there. So they have sent cash. Uh, she supports this $106 billion that they're trying to get through Congress. Where's some of that money going? They've done tens of billions of dollars to pay salaries for Ukrainian government bureaucrats. They've paid pensions for Ukrainian retirees with your tax dollars. We've got homeless veterans. We have all these problems. This is the U.N. way of thinking that we're somehow globalists and we have unlimited resources to do. You know, I think here's the problem. You can take the ambassador out of the United Nations, but you can't take the United Nations out of the ambassador. So, Scott, well, first of all, I guess the, the, the biggest moment in that exchange, uh, just from a zinger standpoint, is the U.N. line by DeSantis. Yeah, that quip, uh, you can take uh, the ambassador out of the U.N., but you can't take the U.N. out of the ambassador. I, I was sitting in a room and there at the debate and just people... I mean, you could like people immediately recognize that as a deep, deep cut. Uh, and I think it was really the only memorable slash of the night. I mean, they obviously insulted each other a lot. They went back and forth a lot. Um, and uh, but I thought that one to me was was the most memorable cut. And, and you know, this this uh, skepticism of internationalism, this skepticism of U.S. involvement in, uh, you know, sort of world you know, globalist, if you will, foreign policy organizations, it runs deep in the Republican Party right now. And, and I don't, you know, look, some of it's warranted. The U.N. hasn't exactly covered itself in glory here over Israel and Hamas. And, you know, they it, it is viewed as a bad organization right now. And Haley, of course, wears her being ambassador there as a badge of honor. And I think DeSantis yeah. was smart to use it against her. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish you would have had a better response to it because, I mean, the the right response is this. Is, aren't you glad that you should have been glad that I was there? Yeah. To be able to stand up for and to fight against these U.N. values. In some ways, DeSantis even later on kind of credited as oddly, like, like at the very end when he was like, say something nice about the other person, he kind of points that out. And of course, she, she her, her response, of course, was so short saying he was a good governor. But, but anyway, my point being is that she could have said, Yes, the UN is a uh, an organization which has its priorities often misplaced, which is why it's often I have proven that I will stand up to these people, and I will and I will again. But I didn't quite hear that response. Yeah, you're right. DeSantis at the end um, said she was a good <laughs> representative at the UN, even <laughs> though he had he had zinged her on it. So, but but that you know that exchange. I mean, that's the that's the old party and the new party. And, um, you know, there's other issues where this manifests itself. Entitlements. You know, you heard DeSantis go on the attack on that. You've heard Trump go on the attack on that. You know, Republican Party used to be the party of entitlement reform. Now it's basically sounds like, you know, Bill Clinton of the 90s, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, trade, you know, dealing with with international economic issues. I mean, the party has transformed itself on certain things. Uh, but I think that foreign policy debate really that's probably the greatest dividing line of are we still the Reagan Republican Party? And and it's it's pretty clear that's that's on the wane. Jared, it seems to me that the 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 best part about that exchange, if nothing else, as far as a contrast between those two candidates and the two front runners, 
is that I actually could understand what they were saying. They were making cogent arguments that this is what a presidential contest should be about is people being able to lay out policy decisions and people like me, you know, looking at that and saying, okay, who best matches my thought process and who do I think is going to be the best leader? So it seems to me the biggest contrast there is the fact that they're they're they can put together a sentence versus Biden and Trump. Yeah, remember when Trump was? I think this was the CNN town hall he did was asked about like how he would what he would do about the Ukraine war, and he was like, "I'd have it fixed in twenty four hours with one phone call." <laughs> it's like what you know, like that's so unserious, uh, and and so I think you're right, Joe. You know, to hear two people battle out two you know different parts of, of where this sort of big tent party is right now on how to handle this. And um, like little things down to Haley saying, you know, we're not going to give them cash, right? Like that sort of like a, like a real direct policy point like that for, again, for, for, you know, maybe 40% of the party, they're sort of weighing these options and trying to figure out who the, you know, the best is. And then, you know, I get the sense that there's 60, 65 percent. That's just like it's just it's Trump. It's Trump no matter what. You know, he they they, they aren't sort of quibbling on the edges of these foreign policy uh, debates. They just it, it's about vengeance. It's about revenge. It's about Trump. It's about bigger. It's about the bigger thing. And, and he represents that. And so you're right. It's nice to hear those sort of uh, battles take place within the party. I think it's healthy for the party. But again, how much. How, what percentage of the voters are listening or, or weighing those options? I don't know. One other one other issue where, um, and it didn't happen at CNN, it happened over on Fox News, uh, but I did talk about it on CNN after the debate last night where, you know, we talk a lot about Trump changing the party, but actually on Fox last night, he took the party back. He took the party back to old orthodox on abortion. Jared, I'd like to play the clip uh, Trump was talking about his position regarding the exceptions for rape, incest, and, and life of the mother. But you do also have to put in there a little bit. You have to win elections. But if it weren't for me with Roe v. Wade, you wouldn't even be talking about this. Up. You wouldn't be asking that question because with rape. And remember this. They're the radicals. We're not the radicals because they'll kill a baby. Remember, I had the debate with crooked Hillary Clinton, which I don't call it crooked anymore. I use that now for Joe Biden, as you know. I call her beautiful Hillary. She's a beautiful woman. But but in the debate with with Hillary Clinton, I said, I said, you know, she's willing to rip the baby out of the womb in the ninth month. And, you know, I never heard this. It happened to me. It just came to me during that debate. I didn't go up there thinking I was going to say that. And she even winced. Nobody wants to see that happening after a certain period of time. Nobody. They're the radicals because they're willing to kill the baby in eight months, nine months, or even after birth. If you remember the former governor of Virginia, where he said, you kill the baby after the ninth month, or even after it's, you set the baby aside, and you have a conversation with the mother. And of the conversation, can you imagine? But these are the radicals. We're not the radicals. We are not the radicals. But we're living in a time when there has to be a little bit of a concession one way or the other. And I think... Uh, you know, I want to get I want to get it right. I have to get it right. So on CNN after the debate last night, uh, John King, uh, who is, by the way, just terrific. And, you know, we're out here. And he, dude knows everybody. Uh, and we had a great conversation on the air about this. But he was talking about how much Trump had changed the party. And I pointed out that, you know, 
it's actually more of a recent invention in the party to opt against the exceptions. You know, where we live in Kentucky, we only have one of the three exceptions that Trump laid out there. But the, but for most of my career, and going back to Reagan, the, 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 the abortion position was very simple. Reasonable limits on time and the three exceptions, rape, incest, and life of the mother. And so for Trump, uh, he, he's, he's laying out in that clip what I think is a defensible general election position. More than that, he is saying we have to win elections. I mean, that's what he said on Fox News. Like, we have to win elections. And it's interesting how when he says something like that, it's not viewed as naked transactionalism. It's viewed as uh, authenticity. It's viewed as honesty. And, and one of the exchanges we had on TV last night, I said, you know, this transactionalism, you might mistake it for not having any principles on the pro-life issue because he's just talking about we got to win elections. But at, the, but at the same time, most voters, I think, think politicians are constantly engaged in transactionalism. It's just that Trump's the only one that's willing to admit it. And therefore, he gets points for basically being honest about something that is more transactional and, and less principled. I, in some weird way, it, it all works on his behalf. But the bottom line on the issue is he took the Reagan position last night. So he didn't he's not trying to adopt the new you know, the new Republican tilt away from the exceptions and, and towards more restrictive abortion access. He went towards Reagan last night, which I, I sort of found to be kind of fascinating. Of course, his performance, uh, as you pointed out, Scott, on your comments, this was batting practice. You know, this was not that these were all uh, pretty much, you know, fastballs down the middle uh, that he very easily to hit out of the yard. And so as a result, he came across much better because he wasn't being knocked off balance you know every other you know question here and there um but i that said i i will say that i, I from from hearing seeing trump and just how to jared earlier point how unserious he can be he actually came across pretty well last night in, yeah. in that in that town hall and i think juxtaposed against this back to your original point of you know what i said about the liar liar pants on fire i mean it it, it was so tiresome um frankly it was tiresome on both of them and I, I was I was kind of holding them both equally accountable for um, this sort of this this I don't know this nickel and dime kind of cutting back and forth. But then Haley ended up being the worst aggressor in that because she just didn't let up ever. And it, 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 it seemed like it, just, it seemed it seemed like it was like this easy crutch that she could she couldn't get out of her head. I don't, whatever I, it seems to me that was probably a consultant that was mm. someone who got in there and said. This is what you need to do. And this, this, this is your this is your one answer, and just stick to that. But whoever that consultant was, I don't think did her very well. I think I think that if you look at by the way, DeSantis released a video before the debate showing Haley, you know, saying one thing and then denying she ever said it. It, it was actually a pretty pretty good video, and it, and it really was a tough video. And I think what they decided as a debate strategy was that instead of trying to to defend all this or parse it out or, or explain, well, that was, you know, in this context and that was that, they just decided to go to that one rhetorical crutch, this DeSantisLies.com thing. But to me, it was vastly overused. And it felt like I called it a rhetorical sandwich board, you know, on on TV last night. It, it, it actually felt like someone who'd just given up on trying to defend their own record. And I, I thought it did her no favors. I think she could have used it 
a couple of times and it would have been a perfectly fine little debate gimmick. But there's like a three minute video on the circulating on the Internet this morning showing all the times she did it. And I'm just telling you, there's not a person watching that who by the end of it wasn't thinking, my God, <laughs> you know, there, there's a limit to how much mayonnaise you can put on a sandwich. I mean, I love mayonnaise, but there's a limit. <laughs> you know, there's a limit to how much you can put on there. And I just I think she got again, I'll go back to my watching her. She looked flustered. She looked unhappy. And and so did DeSantis. He looked nervous, but he settled down. But I think he got under her skin. I think he came right out and and she never really settled into the debate. And uh, and I don't know. You know, I don't know why that is. I mean, she's the one with the momentum. She has been having some gaffes lately. You know, she had the slavery gaffe. She had the thing where she told Iowa they needed to be corrected. I mean, she has, she, she, maybe she was a little tight, a little tentative or whatever, maybe a little nervous about it. But she just never really settled into that thing the way DeSantis did. And, and, uh, and I, and when you, and to your point, Joe, when someone gives you a little, a little device, you know, you just keep punching that button. You just keep punching that button. And, and in the moment, you may not realize just how often you've pushed it. Uh, until it's too late. Yeah, Scott, you made this point, I think, on on both Crouchires and the Vox podcast this weekend uh, about the the sort of flubs that Haley has had over the last couple of weeks. And it's like, well, she had the slavery thing and she had this and she had this. I, I do think she was a little kind of on tilt. And when you're, you know, you're a little rattled like that, there's a way to do the website bit and kind of make it funny and even lean into how much you're saying it. Like, I know you guys are tired of me saying this or make some sort of joke like, look, he lies so much. We had to make a whole website about it. But it just felt like it was like she kept going back to it. You know, it's like she was a, a pitcher who couldn't find the, you know, yeah. any other pitch. And she just had to keep going back to that change up or whatever. And and so, again, this is not to Trump is so good at these things. It's sort of setting up these bits and. I mean, I remember when he did the Caitlin Collins thing, he had the, you know, the transcript of January 6th of, and, you know, he's like, I don't want to take it out. And then five minutes later, okay, I'll take it out. He's so good at that. And Haley and, and DeSantis, I think has always been a little awkward, but they're just not as, as entertaining. And so when you end up seeing these clips, Trump is so good at playing into these bits. He's so good at it. And for her, it just comes off as kind of like a crutch and she looks rattled. And you're like, this is not, there's a way to do this, but she couldn't nail it. One tactical thing, and Joe, I'll, I'll pitch this one to you because of your, uh, your former profession. So after the debate, DeSantis came right out and took my chair on the CNN set and sat up there with Anderson Cooper for quite a while. You could tell he was feeling it. Like he got up there, like I was the right there. And you could tell he was bouncing. He, you know, he had energy. He, 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 he clearly believed coming out of it that he had won the debate and that he had the momentum of the night. So he comes bouncing up on the stage and he, and I think if Anderson had let him, he'd have sat there for another 30 minutes because he just, you could tell. So he leaves. Initially, I, I think there was some thought maybe Haley was going to come out as well, but she never, she never appeared. And my interpretation of that was, she didn't really want to prolong the evening. She just wanted it to be over with and, and try to move on. As a journalist, you know, someone who's covered the and moderated and covered debates, is that how you interpret that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, because the, in the long run, those kind of conversations, even though journalists and, and those hosts can be, you know, equally grilling, they're not going to be throwing out the kind of epithets that 
that the DeSantis was toward her or she was toward him. I mean, that would have it would have been a friendlier interview than the debate would have been. So that I mean, to, to pass up that opportunity, uh, I think was was a mistake on her part, even if she thought that she was licking her wounds and wanted it to be over. I mean, frankly, what I do watch right at, when, when the debate was over, I do watch the body language and um, and I and I saw, you know, well, first of all, it seemed to me, Scott, you were there and you saw it. I did not see the two of them shake hands afterward. What I saw mm. was um, DeSantis had his, one of his children there, his son, who kind of you know ran up and and he picked him up and then, but he they kind of went there. They, they didn't want to look at each other. And uh, Haley went out to the crowd and was shaking hands and was really engaging people and taking selfies and and so it actually looked very normal to me as far as her. Yeah. It almost seemed to be the opposite of what you're saying. But then I think what happened was. And frankly, you came out and you were the first person that said DeSantis won the debate. I think that they regrouped and and they they said to him, "No, they just said you won the debate on CNN. You need to go out there." So mm. I, I I think I think there was this. They had to kind of measure it internally. He had to. I mean, face it, when you're a candidate and you're out there, it's like being on Jeopardy on the stage answering those questions versus being at home and answering the questions, right? It's like you don't quite know how you did until after someone else can kind of give you that feedback. I think once he was reassured, no, no, you need to go out and do it. I think he he made that decision. I I think DeSantis won. That was my gut reaction to it uh, right after it was over with. And my question now is, was the debate enough to blunt her momentum? Because I do think it's true that she has the momentum. Whether it's as true in Iowa as it is in New Hampshire, I don't know. This is not the same electorate. And DeSantis, I think, does have something going with evangelicals and, and so on. But did he blunt her momentum here? And can he stay in second place in Iowa? That's the key for him. Um, we will see. For Haley, um, not only did she not come out, by the way, after the debate, I was hearing in the debate hall, I guess she stopped taking questions altogether. Uh, she's not uh, doing taking questions from audiences at town halls. She's not doing journalists. I think she's I think they put her on lockdown out of fear that more gaffes are going to uh, blunt what she may have going on nationally and, and what she's got going on in New Hampshire. I think the most effective lines of the night for DeSantis uh, were on education. Uh, steering a conversation back towards his record on school choice. And that I think that was really effective. I think his quip on the UN was extremely effective. And I think he constantly tried to keep steering it back towards issues that a voter would care about. I think where Haley may have stumbled a little is in she, she sometimes gets sucked down into the inside baseball rabbit holes, you know, going after DeSantis for campaign staff coming. Go. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. That's not what they want the president to be talking about. So just on style and substance, I give it to DeSantis. My questions are, was it enough to blunt her momentum? And can he use this debate to stay in second place uh, in Iowa and keep the ball bouncing? Jared, what were your impressions? Yeah, I think DeSantis probably, you know, won the night. Uh, I, I continue to think he gets a little bit better each debate, too, and a little bit less awkward uh, he had those weird smile, fake robot kind of things. And, you know, just a couple of months ago, I think he's getting better at that. And so he's a little bit more polished and can hit his points a little bit better. Um, I get the sense that, again, that that Nikki Haley's a little bit on tilt. Uh, I don't know if everybody's saying she had all the momentum kind of got to her. And now she's worried about losing that momentum and gotten her own head. 
I, I continue to, to, you know, not be convinced, though, that either of them are doing enough to either each other or Trump that it will matter much once the votes and the caucuses happen. I, I still think both of them aren't hitting Trump enough, aren't setting themselves apart enough, that they spent too much time quibbling back and forth on, on small lies. And so I think overall, DeSantis had a good performance. Do I still think he, you know, comes in, in second in Iowa? Probably. But I, I again, I just, I, I tend to think Trump has such a big lead. They're not hitting him enough. They're not doing enough to set themselves apart. And, and I just, you know, it'll be enough to maybe keep their donors and keep them in the race. But I, I, it wouldn't shock me if, if we look back and say, yeah, they just, you know, if they're both out of this very quickly and we point to a lot of these performances and just say they were good, but they didn't do enough. And I would say that uh, I'll, I'll be a little more forgiving of, of Haley, even though I was I, I certainly the DeSantis lies dot com stuff uh, was was tiresome and just hokey. Uh, that said, I think on on substance. Be, so I think DeSantis wins on style. I think he just looked better as the evening went on. She seemed she did seem more rattled, Scott. So I agree. But I think on substance, I think she had more substantive things to say overall net. So my question is: so let's take a break. When we come back, Scott, as we as we kind of handicap this race, it has to do with who is she trying to reach, though. And I don't know if there was tactically, uh, you know, who was the undecided voter or who was the person to motivate. My question when we come back for Scott is, did she make any difference? And is she reach, who does she need to reach to make a difference? Because right now, we're, this is all just an academic exercise about who can finish second place. So when we come back, the question is, is who are the voters that both DeSantis and Haley need to reach? And what do they need to do to try to make a difference in this race in the first place? Here on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Hey there, Flyover Country listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by the Bluegrass Media Lab, Kentucky's premier media studio. The Bluegrass Media Lab offers a wide array of services, including video production, podcasting, live shot broadcasting, web development, media training, and more. You name it, they do it. Head over to bluegrassmedialab.com today to get in touch. Now, back to more Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold, your roundtable host, Jared Crawford behind the, the controls, and Scott Jennings in a nondescript hotel room in Des Moines, Iowa. The morning no, I'll, after. I'll tell, I'll, let me give you a little, I'll tell you where I am. I'm in the Hotel Fort Des Moines, which is a historic hotel in Des Moines and is played host to a number of famous people. And uh, Lyndon Johnson and uh, John F. Kennedy did an event here. Nikita Khrushchev stayed in this hotel in 1959 when he came here to a tour American farming operation. So this is not a nondescript hotel, but it is one of the most historic properties in uh, in Des Moines and is and is played host to lots of famous people. So I don't know I don't well, know from, if I'm in the Khrushchev suite or not, but no, I, like, <laughs> like 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 many historic hotels, they've gone in and they've taken away all the charm and they made it look like a residence inn. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, uh, but Scott, uh, you were there uh, at the hall uh, in on on Wednesday night for the uh, debate between. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, as we were saying just before the break. Uh, I mean, this is in some ways just a, it's a show of, of little consequence because Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee. Something, yeah. I mean, the, the, I, I, the historic 
and and unusually historic would have to happen for him to collapse from where he is right now in the in the in the, in the uh, polls versus where we, you know one of them ascending out of nowhere. What you just said is is really true. He is the presumptive nominee, and as I was considering his position last night, uh, as we thought about these debate performances, he's not unlike Biden in that for Joe Biden. Um, he is the incumbent president of the United States. It takes a heck of a lot for a party to throw out an incumbent in a primary. And we saw that manifest itself for Joe Biden. Well, for Republicans, Donald Trump is the de facto incumbent head of the Republican Party. And you'd have to come up with a great reason to fire him. Now, some people might say, well, his legal troubles are enough to fire him. Well, Republican voters don't agree. So then you start to shift into other things. Well, what else has he done? Has he done something on an issue that we don't like that would want us to fire him? Well, he, he seems to be pretty much setting the policy agenda in the party. Well, then the final refuge would be, well, strategically, does he give us the best chance to win? And I, I mentioned this on TV last night. For a long time in this race, the theory was, well, he, he's going to lose to Joe Biden automatic. Therefore, even if you love him, you got to vote someone else. Well, now Republicans see all these polls showing Biden weak and, and Trump winning nationally and in swing states. So now that's off the table. So... This The way this primary has turned out, it's that most Republican voters don't really see a reason to fire the head of it, of their party, who they see as the de facto incumbent in the race. Quick setup for Iowa. Monday night, Iowa caucus, all these Iowans will gather up. Uh, Democrats cannot, um, uh, or they're not having a caucus, it's just Republicans. So you get these Republicans in a gym. And and they choose. It's not like a primary. You don't walk in and, and cast a secret ballot. It's different. The way it looks and the way it works is different. Each campaign, in fact, gets to have a person make a speech on their behalf in front of the assembled Republicans. It's kind of a neat, kind of a neat tradition. Donald Trump is dominant in the polls, over 50 percent in most of the polls I've seen. For him, his campaign is going to spin any win north of 12 points as historic because that would be the largest Iowa caucus win. Now, the reality is, if he just won by 12, that would be a drastic underperformance versus what we're seeing in the polls. But they'll say anything north of 12 is historic. That's what he wants. He wants to crush here and keep the narrative alive that he's inevitable. For Ron DeSantis, who's obviously been getting sort of the bad vibes right now, if he can somehow overperform expectations, maybe get Trump below 12, even drag him into single digits, then all of a sudden you get the comeback kid narrative. You get the, hey, DeSantis, you know, shocked the world. You get that, that vibe coming out. For Haley, I think she has the easiest time in Iowa. No one, at least until recently, was expecting much out of her. If she were to somehow beat DeSantis in Iowa, which people here tell me is possible, then a, I think it gives her a boost going to New Hampshire. And B, it puts DeSantis out of the race, which, interestingly, is good for Trump uh, because some of his people will go to Trump, but bad, but bad for Haley. Best case scenario for Haley is DeSantis keeps it going for another couple of states. Uh, but if he finishes third here, I don't know. I just don't know where your campaign goes. He's not going to do well in New Hampshire. And then you've got several weeks. you got to keep a campaign alive. Money's going to get tight. So to me... DeSantis has got the high bar here. He's got to shock the world by dragging Trump into some closer race. Haley can finish second and do well, even if she's a distant second. Even if she finishes third, her Alamo isn't until the following week in New Hampshire, and we'll be having this uh, conversation again. But right now, just being on the ground and folks I talk to and looking at the data, 
this race in Iowa is clearly Donald Trump's to lose. They clearly like Donald Trump, uh, and his campaign is really betting on a crushing win. And and as a final note, they're really, really banking on first-time caucus goers. They've spent a lot of time recruiting people who've never participated to come into the Iowa caucus. And the great thing about someone like that is no other campaign is having a conversation with them. So they're not reliable because they're new and they've not caucused before. But on the other hand, they wouldn't be in the room if not but for having been found and recruited by Donald Trump. So they're not going to walk into the room and say, well, I came here because Trump asked me, but then I was persuaded by Nikki Haley's representative. That's not going to happen. So we'll see who's got the organizational heft, Trump or DeSantis on caucus night uh, here in Iowa. Jerry? Yeah, I, there was something Scott said there that I just, I can't, This I, the, that Republicans continue to think that Trump gives them their best shot to win when he's the only guy that lost to Biden in this race. I mean, it just, it still boggles it's in all the polls, mind. is it not? If you look at the polls, I know, Jimmy, no, he I know. Point. He, I yeah. mean, right now, Republicans see him as beating Biden. And so it yeah. is totally kneecapped, this strategic voting argument. But but yeah. you're right. He didn't Although beat the Biden. Now. Poll that, that the Haley decided was, I, th- I thought was compelling, was that, you know, Trump was eking by before Biden coalesces, which he probably will, while she had like a 17 point lead over Biden. Yeah, she, she had one outlier survey. She she cites it all the time. But there's other surveys that show her in in a similar place to DeSantis and Trump and even some where she's she's not winning. Let me, let me just no Nobody's going to. Nikki Haley or no one's going to win by 17 points, but Jared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, again, so I, you know, it, I think once we find like, oh, we've, we've talked a lot about this the last, you know, year or so, and it's been a lot of sort of, well, this could break this way or this could break this way. I, I'll be interested to see in some of the sort of like exit polling over the next couple of weeks where we sort of really find where the party's at. What are they thinking about? You know, what are the issues, those sorts of things. So I, I, it'll be nice to have some votes cast and actually be able to have some meat to kind of chew on and, and sort of know where, where we're at. So I'm just excited to finally have some sort of, you know, clearance here and we can dig through some some fun numbers like we like to over the next couple of weeks. You know, speaking of numbers and Scott, I think that your casting of Donald Trump as the incumbent here is, is spot on. This is like the two popes. You know, you, you, you have uh, you have Trump and Biden both as incumbents running again. The last time we I don't know, maybe Teddy Roosevelt, you have to go back to to kind of think about this and that, that kind yeah. of a construct. So but speaking of history, and I'm the only one old enough to remember this, uh, at least on this podcast, is that, you know, so on that score, if Donald Trump, in fact, was in office right now and he had these kind of numbers, I think you would say he was weak or weakened. And that's what I think about Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy in 1980, because Carter was a weakened president. I mean, very similar to Biden's position, if you will, but also to Trump's position, if you will. And so and Carter beat Kennedy in Iowa, uh, basically 60-30. It was 59-31. And but still, Kennedy was like, oh, 31 percent against an incumbent president. That's a protest vote. That's right. saying, hold on here. Then uh, just very briefly, a little history uh, 43-40, the main caucus, Carter eking out over Ted Kennedy uh, the month later in February. That same week in New Hampshire, 47-37, Carter over Kennedy. So, and then, of course, Kennedy, the, the next one after that was the primary in Massachusetts, which, understandably, Ted Kennedy won. 
65-28 over, over Carter. Carter, of course, ends up prevailing, but he was a weakened candidate after going through that and being hammered by the scion of the Democratic Party, you know, and, and then and then, you know, kind of limping in against Ronald Reagan in the three-way race in 1980. All the history aside, though, I do have to wonder about, and I guess Trump's, you know, Trump's base, this rabid uh you know, group that will the, the 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 ever Trumpers, you know, that doesn't make a difference to them. But I do wonder about the the chaos and and the different things that I mean that DeSantis was talking about all the ways that Donald Trump failed to follow through. Hilly talking about the fact that I mean, even if if she's still gunning for VP, I don't know how that happens, but about the chaos with him and how he didn't he's he she didn't quite she couldn't quite say he was unfit, but right up to that point. I guess what I'm saying is that Donald Trump Consider yes, he's going to win the nomination unless this, as uh, as DeSantis pointed out, like that the trial should somehow weaken him. But I, but but how weakened is he as a result of this badgering that he's getting from these two other people and all the attention that's getting? How weakened is Trump? How weakened is Trump? Not for the nomination, but for the for the general. Well, I mean, look, he's he's got weaknesses, but they have nothing to do with DeSantis and Haley. I mean, the weakness is if he gets convicted of a crime. I was looking at a Reuters survey this morning. I mean, huge numbers of independents and even Republicans are still telling pollsters if he is convicted of a crime, they will not vote for him. And that's what Haley and DeSantis are trying to point out. It's just that Republican primary voters, as Chris Christie said on his hot mic moment, don't want to hear it right now. But that's a, that's a real weakness, is if you peel off people who hate Joe Biden and really want to do another president, but they say, I just can't vote for a convicted felon. I mean, that's Donald Trump has to have those people. And that's the people the Republicans lost in the November 2022 midterm. On Biden, I mean, his weak point is job approval is under 40 and a total lack of enthusiasm and intensity. I want to just I'm going to leave you with this. The Terrence Group, which is a Republican polling firm, uh, just this morning issued a survey. Uh, they did a big national survey, which, and I trust these guys. But they've got Joe Biden's job approval at 38%. Only 13% strongly disapprove. They've got his disapproval at 56 41% strongly disapprove. But look, look inside the numbers. Women, 39. These are approvals for Biden. Men, 36 age 18 to 44, 33%. I mean, think of, I mean, young voters, this is the Biden base. Go down the list. Women under 55, 34%. Young women. I mean, this is the Democratic Party base. They don't like Joe Biden. Now, can he reel them in? Can Can he coalesce them like you suggested, Joe? Yes, I think he can move them. But Losing just a couple of points off of any of these groups could be enough to cost you the election. Hispanics, he's at 40% approved, 53% disapproved. Unheard of for a Democrat. Even among African Americans, his um, one of his best groups, 60% approved, but 31% disapproved. I mean, if if Donald Trump or the Republican nominee improves just a couple of points among African American voters, or they don't vote, major problem for Joe Biden. So when you look through this data, you realize the incumbent president has massive job approval and enthusiasm problems. And you look at Donald Trump and and you he's got a piano hanging by a wire above his head, which is being convicted by a jury. 
And it, it is really a collision course between two guys who are just fundamentally weak and may not have much they can do about it. It may be that things are going to happen to them and the campaigns are ancillary. It's just that world events are going to end up determining whether, you know, they win or lose. Yeah. Again, it's, it's crazy to me to hear those numbers. And I still like my brain goes back to anybody could beat Biden except Trump and the, the consensus within the party or what I think we'll see over the next couple of weeks is they think the only person who can beat Biden is Trump because he's so weak. And I, again, I, I think I, I see Trump rolling because I think these the trial and the you know the whole the, the deep state is after me and all these things have have helped put him back in the in the strongest position. And I don't know how that like you mentioned, Scott, if he is convicted, it hardens his base and he loses the votes he needs to actually win. It's this remarkable catch twenty two that I think a lot of us are seeing and thinking about. And then there's just these ever Trumpers, as you call them, Joe, who while we've been, while we've been talking today, guys, so Suffolk university has just released a survey in New Hampshire and Iowa. Uh, actually, which would not not reflect then the debate from last night. I wouldn't think because this would be too good. Actually, let me read this here. Cause this is just coming in. No, this, I'm sorry. This is Iowa. So this is Suffolk university, 500 likely caucus goers, in Iowa. So so they've got Trump at 54, Haley at 22, DeSantis at 13, and Ramaswamy at 6. DeSantis is the top second choice and has a higher favorability than Haley, but not as a first choice. So this again confirms Trump dominance in Iowa, but it is it does show Nikki Haley has Obviously, pick up some momentum here. This obviously would not this this does not take into account last night's debate. But you can see there's a world where she actually does finish second in Iowa. But given the fact that DeSantis went all in on Iowa, yeah, oh, that, that's that what I'm saying. A, a third, tremendous disappointment. Well, a third place finish here would, like I said, I, I just I don't see how he continues after that. His whole this is his Alamo. Hers is in New Hampshire. His is in Iowa. Uh, but you know, it's interesting. You, know, you look at the fave unfaves in this survey. Trump is at 73 fave, 22 unfave. DeSantis, 58 fave, 23 unfave. Haley, 49, 35. So um, DeSantis still pretty popular guy in the Republican Party, despite having tumbled down to third in this survey. You know, just looking at this, the, the, the macro 30,000 foot view of all this is this is still all about Trump. Trump is still the defining, you know, figure of this generation politically. And in the way that, I mean, frankly, we went from Clinton being the defining figure and whether, you know, and and that whole kind of the, the, the people who were rallying about to his side or against it, Obama became that that name. And this is all about Trump. And Biden was elected because he wasn't Trump and he would stop Trump. And and Trump to this point now. So that this this to me is I, I guess go back to where I think I think the Republican Party is going to lay a path here for disaster again in the fall. And we we can see it coming, but it's it's that's 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 the bed that was made. So uh good luck. Yeah <laughs> it's uh it's and, and and I can see the whatever you want to like I said, I don't know what hold he has or what it is, and I think because of the fact that he's still 
the, the whole end, the enemy and the enemy is my friend type thing, you know, where he's, he's willing to say those ridiculous things are those extreme things, you know, to get you know the things up. Anyway, we, we have to wrap it up here, Scott, but I, I, I get uh, off the couch, we'll- Joe, get off the couch. <laughs> I know we're listening to, we're listening to Joe. He's got his, he's got his hands on his temples. I he's do. staring at the ceiling. I am. It's just, it's just very sad. Hey, before we wrap it up this week, though, I do want to. This, this, this has all been about Iowa and and Scott. Thank you for your uh, very capable and insightful analysis, both here as well as on CNN. I do want to give a quick shout out in Kentucky to a, a legislator who announced this week that he was retiring from the state house to go work for the egg department and under under Jonathan Shell. That's uh, Representative Brandon Reed, and hmm. Reed is just a remarkable legislator, just a principled, do it for the right reasons. Um, you know, policy wonk and 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 a team player. He's been an ally for 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 years for uh, in my world and electric cooperative worlds and 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 somebody who just understands Kentucky. And he's decided to move on to uh, in a in an executive position in the ag department. We just want to say thank you for uh, for everything that he's done. He's a great guy. Yeah, Brandon Brandon's a great American, and uh, he'll do great with Jonathan Shell over there. Good good call out. By the way, before we go, Jared. Within the next hour, I want SeanSouthernLies.com. I want it on the internet. Oh, yeah. And I just want you to basically log on to some social media venue and just say it over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Just over and over and over again. Over Didn't until Sean say he was going to be here this week? He did. He did say he was going to be here. And then like five seconds before the show started, uh, he gives us some static about, well, something came up. Well, like, nothing came up at 830 in the morning. So what I think is true is that SeanSouthernLies.com. I think that's what is true. And uh, and I don't know if he's hung over uh, or whatever. But anyway, Jared, website. Yep. You're you're the yep. master of getting these things turned around. We just need people to know he promised to be here. He bailed on us. And SeanSouthernLies.com, period. End of story. For Jared <laughs> and Scott and kind of for Sean, I'm Joe Arnold. SeanSouthernLies.com. 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 This has been Flyover Country with SeanSouthernLies.com. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.